Well, if you turn to Proverbs chapter 12, please. Proverbs chapter 12. I want to read verses 24 and 25. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Well, the title for this night, to tonight's lesson is uh, The Cure for Anxiety. <clears throat> Excuse me, in verse 24, I won't say too much about that. We uh, covered uh, this matter of uh, diligence in another, diligence and laziness in another lesson. But I just wanted to mention that God made us to be doing, and quite uh, coincidentally, I don't know, I couldn't say that, shouldn't use that word, I suppose, from the pulpit. But uh, it is it is amazing how depressed people uh, sometimes are helped by activity, and uh, the lack of activity is related to depression. Um, idle people are not happy people, and so what I found that people that are depressed, have a tendency to shut down. And all that does is make a downward spiral and make them worse. Uh, We need to be busy. As much as you tell them, uh, I've had an employee that misses a lot of work because of depression, much as you tell them that, look, you know your work is therapeutic, right? And and they'll agree with that. Uh, They still will let the depression keep them them idle and... um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, let it sink in. God gives us things to do in life. And if our calling involves what seems to be work that's uh, not important to us, we need to remember that if God has called us to do it, then it's important to him. And God um, judges us on faithfulness, not on on uh, what we do, but how faithful we are in what we do. We need to keep in mind that God rewards faithfulness. Uh, indeed, that should be abundant reason enough for us to be busy people. Uh, <clears throat> and a little thing may amount to be a big thing in the end. <clears throat> I think about the uh, the story of the conversion of Spurgeon. And I'm sure you've all heard that story, how he was he couldn't make it to his own church because of a snowstorm and ended up in this little, uh, I think it was a Methodist church, and and there were just a few people that even made it, and there was no officers except the one deacon. And the deacon didn't know what to do. He wasn't a preacher, but he wasn't going to let uh, the service go by without the word being preached. And so he he preached the text and from Isaiah, and and uh, Spurgeon said later on he he didn't do a very good job of it. It wasn't a very good sermon, but he said it was it was the sermon that God used to to convert him to Christ. And, of course, we know how many people came to Christ through Spurgeon's ministry. I mean, we don't know, but we know many have, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. Who knows? Because his works continue. But uh, I would just say as an example, I mean, this deacon coming to church on a snowy Sunday night might have not have thought, and there are just a few people there, he might not have thought it was, it was worth opening the doors. But look what God did. So God has put us here for a very short time, 
and we need to make the best of it while we have the opportunity. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. And then John 9.4, the words of Christ, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. In 1 Corinthians 11.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as I mentioned in previous lessons, we need to live quorum Deo. We need to live before the face of God, under the eye of God. And, uh, <clears throat> and this is what all Christians need to do. Okay, so let's look at verse 25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. The NIV says, anxiety weighs down the heart. The King James says, heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop. Uh, our translation says that anxiety causes depression. Well, um, uh, how true that is. A good description of depression is heaviness, isn't it? Our heart is weighed down. Now, this is not, uh, this verse is not speaking of Clinical depression is something that we understand more of now. With modern medicine, we now know that there is depression sometimes. It can be caused by physical problems with the body, actual health issues. Uh, thyroid problems can cause depression. Uh, one of the common side effects of Parkinson's disease can, can be um, depression and other things. And some of these things can be Treated and some of these things uh, can't. But here, the Bible points out a very common ailment. And this is a common ailment, anxiety of the heart or worry and depression. And they go together. Uh, this is something that we all have to deal with in our lives to one degree or another, some more than others. Uh, some have personalities that lend themselves more to depression. And... Um, and uh, so it's worse for some people and it is for others. Sometimes it's worse for, worse for some people in different periods of their life than at other periods of their lives. <clears throat> and uh, anxiety and worry bring us no joy but heaviness um, in our heart. Here's some words from Charles Lawson. He says this, There is a necessity that we should be in heaviness through manifold temptations. We must be aware... Uh, beware, uh, lest giving free scope to anxious and melancholy thoughts, our hearts should sink in us like a stone, and souls become altogether unfit to relish the comforts or perform the services of life. Sadness of the countenance makes the heart better, but despondency of heart disqualif disqualifies men for thanking and praising God, for serving their generation, and for bearing the burdens of life. Life itself becomes burdensome and is often shortened by excessive grief. There's nothing that claims our grief so much as sin, and yet uh, there may be an excess of sorrow for sin, which exposes men to the devil and drives them into his arms. What Lawson is referring to is the need for balance in our lives. Um, there is a necessity that we should be in heaviness through many and various temptations that we have to face in the Christian life. When, when Peter says, even though now you're grieved with these manifold temptations, he's saying that you are grieved by them. These temptations and these trials that we have are not something that we, that we enjoy. Uh, they are grievous, 
<clears throat> and so that's part of the Christian life from time to time. And we need to take the Christian life seriously. But we're not to let the serious and the, and the sober uh, turn us into uh, to being cast down and discouraged and depressed. And, and there's a balance there. You can, you can let it go too far to the point to where you're just discouraged and depressed. So we need that balance. Uh, as he says, even our sorrow for sin needs to be held in balance. Uh, we should take sin seriously, and I think most of the time we don't take it seriously enough. And so um, we have to exhort people to be serious about their repentance. And our repentance needs to be deep and, and, and truly sorrowful, yet we are to be people of joy as well. And our repentance should lead us to rejoice in the gospel of God that, that, that we have the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, others around us ought to know us as joyful people as well. Uh, now, uh, <clears throat> worry and anxiety not only rob us of our joy and our hope, but these things also mar our testimony before others sometimes. And they can be discouraging to other Christians as well. We need to keep that in mind. Um, uh, so, uh, so does too much sorrow, uh, which our verse tells us is a result of anxiety in the heart. Now, anxiety and worry are really a subset of fear. And fear is not good for us unless it points us to God, which, of course, it can do. And there, there are many testimonies where the fear of God has brought them uh, to repentance, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But most of it, most often, it's a result of not considering God and not trusting in God, and especially for the Christian. Uh, our fears and our anxieties are often the result of that. Now, Jesus taught about this. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he mentioned fear of not having some of the necessary things in life, food and clothing and things of that, that, that nature. And then, he's, then remember on the night in which he was betrayed, he told the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And their hearts were troubled, weren't they? They were very, very troubled. And he said, don't let your heart be troubled. And, um, and uh, we have all these teachings in the scripture uh, that help us. Uh, and we need them so much. And we need to often go to the remedies of Scripture for these things because of fear, anxiety, worry, uh, and the, the grief that troubles bring us. Now, fear, is, uh, fear and worry and anxiety and things like that, another thing about that is that these are things that we don't just conquer once and then we never have to deal with them again. Uh, fear is something that fear and worry and anxiety are, are things that we need to continually address in our lives, we do have milestones of success in our lives from these things, or we should have. But then fear and anxiety can arise from other sources, other kinds of trials, other kinds of situations and people and in other ways than we have faced them before. And when we say, well, I've gone through this before, <clears throat> you generally have to say that yeah, I've gone through something kind of similar, but not exactly. And so, um, and so it's something that we have to continually uh, work on in our lives. I know I, sh I certainly do. Now, uh, of course, anxiety over a job interview is much different than the anxiety over a severely sick child or, um, uh, or something like that. And the greater challenges seem to be constantly inserted into our lives. I've cer cer certainly seen that in my life, and I don't know 
about all of you, but I've certainly had that happen to me, that my trial seemed to, sometimes the trials that I faced when I was a brand new Christian, I look back on them now, and I, and I look at them as kind of, kind of lightweight trials, you know, and I've had some pretty much, much heavier ones as I've gotten older. Uh, so sometimes we face things in our lives that challenge us to the extent that sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this, you wake up in the middle of the night with a, uh, you feel like you've got you know, uh, this dread in the pit of your stomach and, uh, and, and that's fear trying to take over uh, your life. And it robs us of our peace and sometimes even of our sleep. And, and I have to admit, I've, I've, this, these things have robbed me of my sleep from time to time. Now, there may be somebody here tonight that's even experiencing and going through this very kind of thing in their life right now. And I don't know what all of you are going through, but uh, very possibly somebody here tonight or somebody uh, watching. But uh, uh, what I what I love is that there are answers in the Word of God. And I want to speak, first of all, though, of the fiery trials. And that is uh, those over-the-top trials that we sometimes have. And uh, these are trials that are usually uncommon, but uh, but they are the the fiery trials. You have trials. You have, I, I guess you could say this. You could have. We have irritations and we have disappointments. We have trials, and then we have the fiery trials. And so I wanted to say a thing uh, about that, and that is how we tend to respond to these fiery trials. And I uh, I think it's really common that we first. Um, uh, address uh, the questions that we have during some of these fiery trials. Uh, we uh, we want the the answers to the questions of why. And when we're going through these things, we we have two great qu- questions that we want answered. Uh, one is that we'd like to know why, and we may have uh, too much respect to God to challenge God uh, with any irreverent questioning of His will, but. Because um, we know God is righteous and He's done no wrong and He can do no wrong in sending us uh, through trials or allowing these things to come into our lives, but still we wonder why. These questions of why. Why me? Uh, why now? Uh, why so severe? Uh, if you've ever wondered about those things when you've gone through them. And the other question is why so long? Why so long? Uh, why does God seem to ignore my prayers? Uh, why does he let me suffer for days, for weeks, for months, for years sometimes under this heavy and this sore trial or sadness? Well, these are things that Christians go through. People go through these kinds of things and sometimes for long periods of time. And it is hard for us when we try to uh, contemplate what God is doing in our lives and why he's brought this thing into our lives and uh, <clears throat> the first thing I want to say about that is that we can only answer these questions and find any relief uh, about them through faith. It's only through faith. Without faith, without believing, and by that I mean believing God, believing his word, if we don't do that, we'll have no relief. And I'm speaking to Christians, we'll have no relief and no help with our questions. Uh, the answers to these questions... Um, uh, to answer them, I, I need to first say that these answers are for Christians alone. Only believers uh, can uh, can find these answers. Uh, 
uh, that I'm going to be giving here. And it's, it's because of who, of who we are. You are a child of God. And he's determined that this is whatever you're going through is exactly what you need right now for whatever reason. You need it. And you need to believe this because it's the opposite of what you think naturally. The first thing you want to think is, I don't need this today. Have you ever said that verbally? I don't need this today. You realize when you're saying that, that you're speaking against God? <laughs> you're actually speaking against the truth when you say that. I don't need this today. What you're saying is just the opposite of what the Bible says. If you didn't need it, you wouldn't have it. God gives Christians what we need. <clears throat> and I tell you, that's hard to accept sometimes. That, Like I say, especially in the really, really fiery trials. I don't need this. This can only serve to drag me down. There's no good that can come from this. That's what we try to think. That's what we naturally think. And the second phrase in our Proverbs, our, this uh, passage of Scripture in Proverbs is, but a good word makes it glad. And it is a good word for us to know that we're suffering under the hand of a God who loves us. It's a good word for us to know that, uh, uh, that God sends these things under his sovereign care and only for our good, that only good can come out of it for the believer. Uh, and I can think of no better word to tell anyone when they're going through troubles than these comforting words of Scripture, that there is nothing that comes into our lives except through um, God's sovereignty. In Romans 8.28 and these kind of passages and we should never despise these kind of passages because these are the these are these these are the good words that make our heart glad if we will if we'll accept them and if we'll uh, uh, apply them to our lives. Uh, well, I, you know, um, I you know I think uh, I can think of no better word to tell you than what Jesus told to his disciples. He says, "Believe in God and believe also in me." Now. What was his word to his suffering disciples that dark night? Uh, he told them many things, but he told them to believe in him. Uh, and that's, that's a good word. Uh, that's a good word that should gladden our hearts. And there's really none better when you think about it. I believe in God, first of all. We need to believe in his sovereignty. We need to believe in his power. We need to believe in his wisdom. We need to believe in his goodness. We need to believe in his love. You see how the unbeliever has no such foundation. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the same medicine that you have. You've got all this knowledge about the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and all these things I've mentioned. That this God is watching over you. He's not made a mistake. He's not dropped the ball. He orders all things for our good and for his glory. And we have to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that many times during the day. He's doing this for, for my good and his glory. Um, and do we, we don't need to suffer needlessly or to no purpose. So when we're suffering, it isn't needless. It isn't purposeless. You know, we live in a world that's lost its sense of purpose because it's lost its sense of God. And... Uh, I was listening to, uh, I think it was T. 
I think it was just today, today or yesterday, on Renewing Your Mind from R.C. Sproul, he was talking about the existence of God, and he said if there is no God, then there is no purpose. If there is no purpose, there is no God. But he said if there is a God, then we have a purpose. And, uh, and, uh, and so he, you know, and I thought, well, that's very basic, isn't it? It's very basic, but it's very true. It's our belief in God that gives us purpose in life and in everything we go through in life. But especially when you're, when you're crying on your pillow because of some serious hard trial that you're going through to remember that God has a good purpose in this for me. God is not using this to destroy me. God is using this to help me and to, and to do good for me. I just have to wait for him. Um, and so, and so that's, that's so important that we have that, that knowledge, um, of, of God's, of God's purpose in our lives. Um, uh, we don't suffer needlessly. Uh, you think about, uh, Jesus. Did he suffer? Did he suffer needlessly? Well, no. His suffering was so very severe, and yet through his suffering, the greatest blessings in the world have come to mankind. And if Jesus didn't suffer for, for, for nothing, neither do his children. And um, uh, in the midst of the trouble, this is what we believers need to display, and, 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 we, need to, and we need to know how to respond. Uh, do we really trust God, even with this? Or is this trust limited to when our troubles are only not very great? You know? And so, now of course, this doesn't mean that we don't do what we, what we can. Uh, we take those lawful actions that are, are right and, and necessary for us to do. But here's a trial that there's nothing more that we can do. There's no other remedy that we can apply. But all the while, even while we're applying remedies that are prudent, uh, even then, we need to put all our faith in God and, and, and realize we're in God's hands. Uh, Psalm 27:14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice what he says there, that our first duty is to wait on the Lord. And that means to sit, sit back and let God take care of the matter. Not there again, not that we don't do what we can do, but there's times when we've done everything, done everything we can. God hasn't revealed anything more that we can do. And now it's time to wait on the Lord. Uh, we need to not fret. We need to just wait. Uh, God has this. He has it under control. And that's a difficult thing for us, isn't it? Now, I know that you've all heard me uh, mentioned the illustration of the Red Sea and how, in fact, there's a there's a book called uh, the Red Sea, uh, uh, something about the Red Sea, and I've read that, and uh, basically teaching how Christians go through this Red Sea experience. And maybe I don't know if all of you have, but I think most Christians at one point in their life they they, they run into something that there's nothing that they can do about it, and they're stuck. And the children of Israel before the Red Sea, they had the, the ocean in front of them. They had, they had the Egyptian army behind them. They had no, no place to go. And so all they could do is wait on the Lord and trust the Lord. And it was a hard thing for them. But God did deliver them in a way in which no one 
would have ever imagined that he would part the ocean and and uh, have them cross the Red Sea on dry land. But uh, the Red Sea experience, that principle, is something that God does use in the lives of his people. He puts you in a place where you have done all you can do. There's nothing more you can do but look to God and to wait upon the Lord. And uh, and so this uh, Psalm 27, uh, 14 says, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. You see, uh, waiting on the Lord will help us to face our fears. Uh, he'll give us good courage. And um, and, then he, and then he gives us the promise, he shall strengthen your heart. The promise is not he'll immediately take away your trial. It's not he'll make the trial to be short-lived. No, but the promise is he will strengthen your heart. And when you have a heavy heart, you need strength to bear that burden. And what he's saying is, I will give you the strength to get through this if you'll wait upon me. He doesn't say, I'll just make it all go away, but something so much better, so much better. He'll be with us through it. He'll grow us through it. He'll strengthen us through it. And this is how he matures us. This is how he works in all of his children. And David wrote the 27th Psalm, and we know all the troubles that David went through. Um, but it is written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. You know, uh, a weightlifter doesn't get stronger if every week he keeps putting a little less weight on the barbell, right? He's not going to get stronger that way. He's got to put a little bit more weight on the barbell. And, um, and, and you know, God is merciful, and he'll give us grace to go through whatever he gives us, and um, and and when he gives us something that's heavier than what we've had before, we need to remember God is exercising our faith that we needed to have this heavier trial. I found this poem and I thought it was very, very edifying. It's uh, from an, uh, an unknown author and you've probably heard some of the lines from it before. Uh, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you, where the arms of God cannot support you, where the riches of God cannot supply your needs where the power of God cannot endow you. The will of God will never take you where the Spirit of God cannot work through you, where the wisdom of God cannot teach you, where the army of God cannot protect you, where the hands of God cannot mold you. The will of God will never take you where the love of God cannot enfold you, where the mercies of God cannot sustain you, where the peace of God cannot calm your fears, where the authority of God cannot overrule for you. The will of God will never take you where the comfort of God cannot dry your tears, where the word of God cannot feed you, where the miracles of God cannot be done for you, where the omnipresence of God cannot find you. Well, I, I thought that was a, a good a good poem. Um, I like that. And uh, our verse says the... the uh, uh, um, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Well, that good word is found throughout the word of God. That good word we have in our Bibles, and especially in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, as I said earlier, believe in God, believe also in me. And we must not minimize how good of a word the gospel is for us. 
No matter what we go through, the gospel of Christ is a good word that ought to make our heart glad. Now, I'm not overstating this. You think about Paul in a Roman prison, bound in a Roman prison, and he writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I think about that, and I think about the wisdom of God for putting the apostle in prison to write that passage. See, if he was living in the lap of luxury when he wrote it, it wouldn't have the same effect, would it? It wouldn't mean the same. But here he was, bound in a Roman prison, and he writes this passage, Rejoice in the Lord always, even when you're in prison. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, it was because uh, uh, there was nothing bigger in Paul's life than the gospel. You see, there's nothing bigger in his life than the gospel. And he saw the gospel um, uh, being uh, 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 prospering when he was in prison. He talks about the Roman guards that have, uh, he mentions a household of Caesar and uh, that he's obviously winning his guards to Christ in the, in the very house of his imprisonment. It was nothing bigger to him than the gospel. Nothing more important to him. There was no joy greater for him than his relationship with God through Christ. And I think that's our problem so much. Is that's not, that's not the biggest thing in our lives sometimes. And so this trial becomes the biggest thing in our lives. And let's face it, most of our worry and anxiety is about matters of much less importance than the gospel. Um, uh, and if we could get a vision of the love of Christ, the glory of the gospel, the privilege of having our sins forgiven, the glory of our heavenly inheritance in Christ, how would we find time to worry and be anxious about lesser matters? A good word makes it glad, our passage says. Well, I want us to consider uh, a prayer of the Apostle Paul, so I've been referring to his time in prison. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, another epistle that he wrote from prison. And in Ephesians, there's a prayer, and I that he's that he, he has a couple of prayers in Ephesians. They're significant, and 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 I know that on Sunday night, Pastor Smith was going through uh, one of these prayers uh, not too long ago, but less than, about a month ago, it seems like. But I want us to look at the prayer found in Ephesians chapter three, verses thirteen through twenty-one. Let me read that for you. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, he states his goal and why he prays this prayer 
and 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 he says that it's that they might not be they might not lose heart that they might not be discouraged that's the beginning of depression when we lose heart when we begin to lose heart he says i don't want you to lose heart and uh <clears throat> and i think that's quite amazing remember he was the one that was in prison but he's concerned that they would not lose heart i just think that's an amazing thing what grace was shown to him and it is for this reason that he goes to God in prayer for them. And what is Paul's earnest request to the Father? Well, verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Remember we were just talking about from Psalm 27. He will strengthen your heart. God wants him to strengthen their hearts, you see, um, according to the riches of his glory. Now, uh, uh, it, it's, it's interesting that in Philippians 4.19, um, I want to just turn over there for just a moment, Philippians 4.19. He says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That phrase, phraseology that we have here in this prayer, according to his riches. He doesn't say from his riches, but according to them. When someone gives you something from, when a, when a man gives you something from his riches, um, this tells us that his riches have been reduced by that amount. If I give you $100, you have to assume that um, uh, my checking account or whatever account I took it out of is $100 less now since I've given that to you. But it's not that way when God gives. When God gives, you can assume that it is according to his riches. Because his riches cannot be decreased by giving them. He gives them to us, and his riches never go down. It's according to his riches. After God has bestowed all his riches blessings upon us that he does, he's not one bit poorer. Isn't that amazing? And all his riches are as great as they were before. So Paul uses the word as translated for us as according to God's Riches. So that's a great blessing to be blessed according to the riches of his glory. Think about that. How great is his glory? His glory. How glorious is God? How wonderful is God's glory? Do you have any idea? I don't have any idea. I've never seen it. I just know it's greater than anything I can possibly imagine according to the riches of his glory, it says. Well, that's the kind of a blessing that Paul is asking for them. And what is he asking for? Specifically, he's asking <clears throat> that they would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man or the inner being. Now, and just as he said in Psalm 27, he will strengthen your heart. And what does that strengthening entail? Well, let me read verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. You see, he wants us to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And then in verse 18, he says this. He says, uh, continuing on the, um, uh, the thought he's, from verse 17, he says, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, 
which passes knowledge. See, it talks about the love of God being wider, um, it's longer, and it's deeper, and it's higher than we can comprehend. He says it's, it's past comprehension in all of these ways. And we can believe in it. We can talk about it. We can and we ought to be thankful for it and praise God for it. But we cannot completely comprehend the, the love of God, the love of Christ. You know, this is why he says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It passes knowledge. You see what he's saying? He wants us to know what we cannot fully know. It passes knowledge. But he wants us to know it anyway, you see. And what's the result of knowing the love of Christ which passes knowledge? Well, the last part of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that phrase. Be filled with the fullness of God. If you're filled with the fullness of God, do you think you're going to go around depressed? Don't think so, will you? See, I want to consider that for just a moment. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? And again, here's another concept that passes knowledge for us. How do you understand what this is to be filled with the fullness of God? The fullness of God. See, I find it helpful to think of this as it stands in comparison to the opposite thought. And the opposite thought of the fullness of God would be the emptiness and the vanity of the world. And that we can have some comprehension of. What's more empty and vain than a life filled with worldly pursuits. How empty were you before you knew Jesus as your Savior? Just an emptiness. Solomon says this, and the main, the main theme in the book of Solomon is this whole matter of the emptiness and the vanity of earthly things. Solomon, considering all the greatness of his kingdom and all the greatness of his wealth, and he says this in Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I looked on all the works of my hands that my hands had done, and in all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, here's his, here's his, here's his, uh, his what, he, what he comes up with, he said, it was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So here we see Solomon's assessment of all of his vast riches that he had, all the worldly fullness. And what's his assessment of all the worldly fullness? It was empty. He said it was empty. It was like grasping, like trying to grasp the wind in your hand. And, and of course, you can't do that. But by comparison, then, let's see Paul's assessment from a very different set of circumstances. Paul, not from uh, a palace, but from a prison in Rome. When he writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in, Christ, in glory by Christ Jesus, the passage I've just read. You see the comparison. Solomon, with everything, has nothing. And Paul, and he's discontent. And while Paul with almost nothing, has everything, and he is fully content. 
You see the difference? I mean, it couldn't be more opposite. And so, this is the this is what God does in our lives. The difference between these two men is the fullness of God in comparison to the vanity of the world. Solomon had all the vanity of the world, and Paul had the fullness of God. And it's in this sense, it's in this sense right here, that the poorest Christian can glory in that same fullness of God. And even when we're going through bitter, bitter trials and troubles, we can rejoice in the fullness of God. So as we focus our attention on the world, we'll experience the emptiness that goes with it. But as we draw near to God, and the more we experience that fullness of God, as we draw near to him, that Paul experienced, to that extent, even in prison, he was joyful. It just makes me think how far I've got to go. I've never been in Paul's place. I've never been inflicted even a quarter or a tenth of what Paul's been afflicted. And I've never experienced the joy that Paul has experienced as well. And so it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? It really is. Um, and, um, and we can also see how this mindset that he's talking about here in this prayer, how it can keep us from discouragement and depression as we experience the losses that we are bound to experience in the world sooner or later. Second Corinthians 4.16 and following, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. It's another term for depression. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, Paul saying is the light affliction, that's what he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's simple, isn't it? I mean, we all know these passages. But this is a good word for us, isn't it? It's a good word that should make our heart glad. Especially for us older Christians like myself, as we see our strength failing, our bodies drooping, wearing out. We have this confidence that though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed by the Spirit of God. And um, and that all these outward things and all these things, afflictions that we, we have, these things have no effect on the inner man. Uh, they can't touch the inner man. They can't destroy the inner man. They can't harm our relationship with God but only help it. And that's the part that matters. And as we grow in grace, our attention and our priorities become more focused on eternal realities and less so on the temporal you know, in the hymn, Abide With Me, which we'll be singing here in a little while, uh, Henry Francis Light, he says, he was very ill when he wrote this. In fact, he died just a few months after he wrote this hymn. He was extremely ill. And he says, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And then he makes this observation in verse 2. He said, Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see, 
<clears throat> and then again the prayer, O thou who changest not, abide with me. And then the prayer in the last verse, Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes, shine through the gloom, and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks, and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. See that heavenly attitude. As he's facing death, as he's gravely ill, he looks to Christ and he receives his comfort from Christ. Um, he was able to let loose the grip he had on the world and looking forward to the solid promises of the gospel and the life to come. He esteemed the gospel as that good word, that good word which made his heart glad. So by contrast, does the world esteem the gospel as a good word? Their hearts are not made glad by it because it's not a good word for them. You know, and, and, and I can say this, if you're a Christian and the gospel doesn't comfort you, then there's something wrong with your spiritual life. I don't mean that thinking about the gospel is going to make you just forget you've got troubles. It, it doesn't mean that you still don't even grieve over your troubles. It doesn't even mean that. But it does mean you find comfort in the gospel. It does mean it helps you uh, to carry those troubles. It does mean that, you, that God gives you that strength that you need to get through those troubles. And uh, uh, that, that is our good word, the good word of the gospel. Um, and this is why the world has no answers. They have no answers. Uh, this is why they're groping in the dark to try to find answers to a world gone mad. This is why they don't have a clue when they see the society that we live in filled with violence and social unrest and uh, hopelessness and drug addiction and alcoholism and suicide and all manner of terrible things. They have no answers because they do not have that good word. But we have that good word. Christian, we have a good word. We have the only good word. So don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of that good word. God has called us to be ambassadors to this lost and dying world around us. They have nothing. We have everything. We have hope. We have the peace, the wisdom that comes from, this, from the good word of, of God. We have the answers that they need. And it's not our view of politics. It's not our view of social justice. But it's the good word of the gospel. And that's why it's so important that they see in us that we have gladness about us that's been brought about into our lives by the gospel. Not that we're unconcerned, not that we're uh, unconcerned about troubles, our own troubles and the troubles of others, but we're, we, we are confident in God. We don't need to be wringing our hands about the bad things that we see around us. We don't need to be wringing our hands about the things we see on the news. We have the answers in God. And we may not have all the particulars, but we know who does have the particulars, and that's God. So a good word has made us glad. Can you say that in your life? So I want to close with this good word as we have it from the Apostle Paul. Writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying. In other words, this is a good word. 
worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Can you think of a better word than that? I can't. So that's our word. And if you're not in Christ tonight, think about this good word from God. This is, this is the answer to the world's troubles. This is the answer to your troubles. This is what keeps you going, Christian, when you go through those really, really hard times. It is a good word that God has given us in the gospel and so many other good words as well. I will never leave thee or forsake thee. That's a good word. There's lots of good words in the word of God. Let's pray.